When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three hundred and ninety-five years ago, in sixteen twenty-seven, Tsu Yujian became the seventeenth and what would turn out to be the last emperor of the Ming Dynasty in China. For over one thousand years, emperors' reigns adopted era names, and Yujian's was called Chongzhong, meaning honourable and auspicious. So you will often hear him referred to as Emperor Chongzhong. The Ming Dynasty, into which Emperor Chongzhong was born, had ruled China since 1368. If we're using the Western calendar, the Chinese used the Datong calendar, a lunisolar calendar which identifies years, months, and days according to astronomical phenomena. Chongzhong's empire covered some six and a half million square kilometers. To give a sense of its scale. If you divided modern-day China in half, north to south, he ruled almost everything to the east of that line, and some to the west. In today's podcast, we will learn about Emperor Chongzhong's life and his startling death. We will learn about the nature of Chongzhong's power and how a dynasty that had ruled for over 250 years collapsed. It is a remarkable story. My guest today is Timothy Brook, emeritus professor of the University of British Columbia. Tim is a historian of China whose work has focused on the Ming Dynasty, but extends to issues that span the period from the Mongol occupation of China in the 13th century to the Japanese occupation of China in the 20th. In addition to serving as the general editor of Harvard University Press's History of Imperial China, he has published extensively on China and the world. And his most recent book, *Great State: China and the World*, was published in 2019. And awarded the Grand Prix des Rendez-vous de l'Histoire. Professor Brook, welcome to not just the Tudors. Thank you so much for making the time to tell me about something that I really don't know enough about. <laughs> well, I'm delighted that you're interested enough in the opposite side of the world to want to include it in the、um, podcast. So it's my pleasure to be here. So we're going to be talking about Chongzhen and the end of the Ming Dynasty. But perhaps it would help us if we start by thinking about the nature of the imperial system in China, and perhaps particularly about succession. How had Chongzhen and his predecessors been chosen as emperor? Is it the same sort of patrilineal system that we see in many Western monarchies at that time? Yes, it really is. It's patrilineal. The emperorship. Is supposed to go to the eldest surviving son of the previous emperor. What becomes a bit of a challenge in tracing imperial succession in the Ming Dynasty, which started in the 14th century, ends in the 17th, is that many emperors did not leave any living sons, and so the question was: 
where would the succession go? And it would usually go to a brother if there were any brothers available, which is the case for Emperor Chongzhen. He was the only surviving younger brother of the previous emperor, and there was nowhere else for the succession to go except to him. In one case earlier in the dynasty, it went to a half-brother, and that created all kinds of constitutional difficulties, but um, they eventually worked it out. The rate of child death was quite high in the period. Even an emperor faced the prospect of losing his sons before they achieved maturity, and that was the case for Tianqi. His last surviving son died in a mysterious explosion in an armory in Beijing, the circumstances of which have never been fully sorted out. So when he died of natural causes in 1627, Chung Jun was the person closest to the line of succession, and so it went to him. And the interesting thing about this is that because of these circumstances, many Ming emperors came to the throne not really having been groomed to be emperor. And uh, this is probably the case of Chung Jun. He was the fifth son of Emperor Chang Le, and you pretty much think the fifth son didn't stand a chance of ever getting anywhere near the throne. And yet there he was uh, at the age of 16, being made emperor of the Ming. It, it was extraordinary, an unexpected development for him. It meant that the throne was often occupied by somebody who had not been groomed for the job. And sometimes that's to the good, perhaps, because they, they come to the position with fresh eyes. But often it meant that they were not well-informed, and therefore pretty much in the clutch of the advisors surrounding them. I'm particularly intrigued by the actions of a court eunuch, and I'm going to apologise in advance for listeners of Madrin who hear me and cringe, but as I understand it, his name was Wei Chongxiao, and he... Wei Zhongxian. Zhongxian. Right. And... He is involved in the succession of Chong Zhong. Was it typical for eunuchs to be so closely associated with imperial power as well? Well, eunuchs play quite a variable role during the dynasty. Sometimes they are very close to the center of power because they're the ones who the imperial princes knew and grew up with and they were their instructors and so forth because only eunuchs were allowed inside the imperial palace. And that meant that often the people that the crown prince was closest to were eunuchs, and so he tended to rely on them when he got to power. This was certainly the case with Chung Jun's elder brother, who was the Tianqi emperor, and he pretty much handed over the administration of China to his eunuch advisors. And Wei Zhongxian was the most senior eunuch and used his position fairly effectively to put his people in power and exclude any other competing factions. And the charge that is usually laid at the door of the Ming dynasty for its last 25 years is that it was uh, in the grip of this kind of factionalism so that anyone who was coming up through the system had to ally with one or other faction. And if you were allied to the wrong faction, you were not going to get a position in the bureaucracy. It got quite bloody because if you were at the top of the hierarchy, you could drop deep hints to the emperor that somebody should be told to commit suicide or should be impeached, which often meant execution or at least meant public humiliation. That was the factional environment into which Emperor Chongzhang stepped when he was 16 years old. There wasn't much that Wei Zhongxian could do about the succession because Chongzhang was the only viable candidate. If Tianxi had had no brother, they would have had to start looking for cousins and nephews, and that would have become an extremely complicated process. But Wei really didn't have much choice, so he had to go with Chongzhang. 
And Chongzhen was initially, he didn't want to make a decision. I mean, he was 16 years old. He had the eunuch faction around him. He was hearing from other officials that the eunuch faction were using their positions to aggrandize themselves, to make themselves wealthy, and to prevent the things that needed to be done from being done in the state administration. And so he was listening to all of these voices. He was a little cautious. A couple of months into his reign, he decided it was time to bring Wei's faction to an end. He does it quietly. He doesn't make a big fuss about it, but he just moves the eunuchs away from himself and turns to civil officials. Now, the problem is, though, that the eunuch faction had already infiltrated their tentacles into the civil administration so that many civil officials are, in some sense, hostage to the eunuch interests. And so Chongzhen really fails to clear the room of the people who shouldn't be there. And you can't blame him too much, as I say. He's a 16-year-old when he comes to power. And as younger emperors did, they tend to find somebody that they can sort of hold on to and rely on. And so he came to rely on a civil official named Wen Tiren. And Wen Tiren used his position pretty much as Wei Zhongxian had done. Put his people in power, keep competitors out. So the administration was not operating at the highest level of efficiency. It was not as functional as it should have been. That said, I don't like to overpaint this aspect of the Chongzhen regime. There were a lot of very competent, very dedicated officials working in his regime. And in the end, I, as I think we'll see as this conversation goes forward, I don't think it was incompetent officials that brought down the regime. It was a much more complicated set of circumstances. The suggestion this has often made, as you've indicated, is that this is absolutely crucial to their downfall. Do we therefore see... And we'll come to your differing interpretation in a second. But do we therefore see the spread of influence from the court across the empire as a whole? Should we imagine that whether it's Wei or whether it's another leader of a particular grouping, that that influences operating at the court or is it, does it have wider ramifications? Oh, your instinct is right. It just goes out throughout the entire country because... All appointments from county magistrate up are made within the um, Ministry of Personnel in Beijing. And who's ever in charge of the Ministry of Personnel is going to be pretty much captive to the powers that be at court so that he's going to have to make appointments that the faction who are dominant in court want. So Ming China had about a thousand counties. That meant about a thousand county magistrates were being appointed when the system was working at its optimal there was a new appointment every three years. So there's a constant flood of new blood into the system. And the people who are getting those appointments are the people who are getting clearance from the Ministry of Personnel, who are in turn getting clearance from somebody at court. So the power of a faction leader in Beijing was enormous when you have this kind of centralized system, and particularly on such a large scale. I mean, China, you think of Tudor England, think of Ming China, the scales are so vastly different. The capacity for a corrupt interest to get itself embedded throughout the system was really enormous. Now, that said, there were ways in which upstanding officials could seek to intervene. They could try to impeach anyone who was not seen to be doing his job who was engaging in corruption. And there was, in fact, a supervisory mechanism called the censorate 
that sent out people to just keep an eye on officials at all levels in the hope of limiting the effects of this kind of factional conflict might have. But it was pretty tough. And Tian Qi, who got on the throne, he was 15, I think, when he became emperor. And then his brother, uh, Chong Jun, became emperor at 16. These are teenagers who perhaps didn't have the wisdom to understand how the system really worked. I mean, he understood how appointments were made and so forth, but didn't necessarily have the human sensibility needed to be able to judge the situation as well as he could. That said, from the records, he seems to have tried to make good decisions. He took advice. He tried to do the best he could under the circumstances. In another sense, he was hampered by his own bureaucracy. The interesting thing about this, if I can just sort of step aside for a moment, is that it's surprising that we know so little about this young man. He's the last emperor sitting on the throne. There is one Chinese biography of him, but mostly the biographies of him are about what's going on around him. They're not about him. So we have very little sense of him as a human being. The one interesting story I managed to dig out was that before he'd become emperor, he related the fact that he'd had a dream about seeing a black dragon twining itself around a pillar in the imperial audience hall. And this was then used later on to say, well, clearly heaven was giving him a sign that he was going to be the next emperor because the dragon is the imperial symbol. Those sorts of anecdotes are almost non-existent for this young man. That's so interesting. Is it indicative of the state of the archives? Is there a process of destruction that we have not got the documentation one would hope to have? You're absolutely right. Every day in the imperial palace, notes were being taken by staff about decisions being made, actions being taken, anything that the emperor said, anything that was said to the emperor. There was this constant secretarial process going on. And at the end of the reign, a team of historians went through all those notes and compiled a sort of official record. It's called the veritable record of the realm of the emperor who had just died. Well, when Chongzhen dies... His reign is not given quite the same process. A team is put together. They put together a sort of draft of what happened during his reign, but it didn't have the same care and attention that the previous emperors did. Because at the end of a dynasty, the usual process is for the new dynasty to come in, round up all the documents, extract what they need, usually having to do with taxation and finance and so forth, And then destroy, uh, well, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, put together a history of the dynasty that has fallen that will tell that story in a way that makes the next dynasty appear to be the legitimate successor. And then the entire archive is destroyed. So accordingly, and I, I, this has been an interesting experience when talking to my colleagues in European history from the same period, you have so rich an archive to work from. You've got state papers. You've got the papers of individual members of the ruling class. You've got the diaries of commoners who just kept notes about their lives. At the end of a dynasty, it was treasonable to keep hold of those records. Those records had to be destroyed. Now, the, people found ways of getting around this. After the Ming dynasty had fallen, they would turn their notes about living under the Ming into something slightly different, sort of moral homilies or whatever. But 
Once the dynasty had fallen, you could not reflect in any way on the strengths or weaknesses of that dynasty. And any official documents were sucked back to the center and they were destroyed. So I, as a Ming historian, I use a lot of material that comes down from society, not just up at court, but it's really hard to find. And there's almost nothing by way of archives. There's only the materials that got printed. Those are the ones that have survived. But family archives, the archives of famous people, the archives of the government, those have disappeared. It makes writing Chinese history a very different enterprise than writing, say, Tudor history. That sounds devastating to a historian and and really hard. Well, I will say, though, it's a kind of an intriguing challenge because what you do, you go into printed local records because every county kept a what's called a gazetteer of the affairs of the county. It was printed roughly every 50, 60 years. So as a historian of this period, you go back to these sources and you, you sort of look around corners. You try and figure out what was going on. It's just kind of fun. And one thing that does survive and that people will think of when they think of the Ming is paintings and ceramics and porcelain and I've seen some exquisite artefacts just down the road at the British Museum here, the wonderful blue and white bowls and bottles and things. Can any of these sort of developments in terms of art be credited to Chong Zhong? Did he patronise the arts as far as we know? That's a question I really can't answer. The patronage of the arts was extremely important in the dynasty, all the way down, really, until the end of the 16th century. Emperors took an interest in this. In fact, some emperors learned to paint. Some were decent calligraphers. Some took an interest in literature. There was a private theater inside the Forbidden City where drama was performed. But that seems to fall away in the last half century of the dynasty. There's no evidence that I've seen that Chongzhen took a particular interest in the arts or his brother, Emperor Tianqi. Neither of them seemed to take an interest. And that may have something to do with this building sense of crisis that the Ming suffered in its last 25 years as the Jurchens on the northern border are starting to organize themselves, become powerful take the name of Manchu. And these, of course, will be the people who will invade China in 1644 and bring the Ming dynasty to an end. So there's a sense of unease in the period. Although I have taken some interest in the patronage of the arts in my own research, I found nothing from the reigns of the last two emperors that show an interest. Through the history of the Ming, the imperial court was an important patron of the arts, particularly for porcelain, because the demand for high-quality porcelain pushed the technological level of ceramic production up in the 15th century significantly. People at the end of the 16th century would moan and say, oh, they just don't make porcelains like they did in the 15th century. Of course, they wouldn't use century, but they would go back to the Shwanda era or the Changhua era, and they would think, oh, those porcelains were fantastic. We just can't do that anymore, which is not exactly true. One of the reasons for the change, though, is that the porcelain industry was very, in the 15th century, very much focused on supplying the court. But get to the middle of the 16th century and the commercialization of the economy and the increasing wealth in the economy meant that there was a lot of popular demand for high-quality ceramics. And so the ceramicists started producing, sort of mass-marketing their material and not just producing it for the court. 
Can ceramics be used in any way as a sort of source to tell us about that period of time? Well, they can be in the sense that I just suggested, not so much the ceramics themselves, but where they appear and what information we can find out about them. We can somewhat reconstruct the ceramics market and the art market in the latter decades of the Ming Dynasty. We can see who's buying, how much they're paying sometimes, what they're looking for. And so the ceramics themselves become a sort of record of consumption more than of production. They're a record of both, but they're more interesting in the latter part of the dynasty in terms of what the elite were consuming and what they wanted to consume. Even better are the what we know about the art market, because paintings often have inscriptions. They'll often have labels on the, when you roll, they're rolled up in scrolls and there'll be a label on the outside that might say, well, that will say what the painting is, who the painter was, possibly when It was acquired by whom and how much he paid. So we have a lot of that kind of material that allows us to reconstruct the art market in some ways much more closely than we can construct what was going on inside the palace. That's fascinating. Before we think about the decline of the dynasty, one more question. Do we know anything about connections with the world outside China in this period? This happens to be a topic in which I am intensely interested. One of the arguments I've been making in my work for the last 15 years is that China has never been closed off from the world. Both China and Europe liked to tell the story that China sort of huddled behind the Great Wall and had nothing to do with the outside world, when in fact there was a great deal of influence going in both directions. Going back to porcelains, Those are the objects that are traveling to West Asia. They're traveling to Europe. This is how Europeans know China as early as the 15th century. And in fact, that's what they call porcelain. They call it China. So their idea of China is very much shaped by the objects that are being exported. The contacts, however, are really more at that level, at the commercial level, than they are at the diplomatic level. The Ming did maintain formal, I guess we can call them formal diplomatic relations with all the neighboring countries. They were willing to receive tribute embassies from almost any state that wanted to present it. And that's how the Europeans first come. They come as tributaries of the Ming state. But really, the contact is happening at the commercial level. So Chinese merchants, Chinese laborers are going abroad. And in fact, There's a reference in a a court document from about 1630 that says that roughly 100,000 Chinese are going abroad every year. They're working in the Philippines, in Southeast Asia, a small number in Japan, and they're involved in trade and so forth. So the world the emperor inhabited was very much a kind of sealed off world. But once you got outside the court, the Ming was much more exposed to the outside world. One of the best sources we have, in fact, for this period are the records of the Jesuits because uh, they were going as missionaries to China starting in the late 1580s. They're there right through until the end of the dynasty and on into the Qing dynasty. They're well-educated, they're linguistically competent, and they leave fabulous records. So that often the best way to get a sense of what's going on on the ground is to find a Jesuit who happened to write a letter back to Rome about something that was going on. And and you can see it in much greater detail. The outsider often notices things that insiders don't bother to record. So China was not closed off to the world. And in fact, after the Ming falls, and there's a kind of rump regime that is forced down into the southwestern corner of the country, 
they send pleas to the Vatican to ask the Pope to mobilize Europeans to come and save the Ming Dynasty. It doesn't happen, but that's how connected the Ming was to the rest of the world. There. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So let's think about that fall, that decline. In your book, Great State, you tell the story of Chong Jung's demise by using memoirs and diaries of people living in China at the time. And I wonder what made you decide to tell the story through the eyes of these individuals? Well, there are a couple of reasons for doing that. One is that there are a few chapters in the book in which I talk about what the emperors were up to. 
But I find that approach to history rather narrow because what's going on at court, it can be interesting, but I'm more interested in how did people live in under a set of conditions that are no longer with us. So what did it mean to be a person of the Ming rather than what did it mean to be an emperor of the Ming? So when I talk about the collapse of the Ming dynasty, I do mention Chongzhen's final suicide. You can't really tell the history of 1644 without that. But I would rather see it from the way in which ordinary people were encountering the chaos that was surrounding them. How were they managing? That to me is the most amazing thing because most people are not the authors of their existence. They have been thrown into a set of conditions and they have to figure out how do I manage? And Chinese are going to do that differently than say English. But on the other hand, everybody's simply human. You need food, you need shelter, you need protection. And in a sense, it's not that the stories that I tell in great state are universal. I'm not intending them to be universal stories, but I, I want to see how did ordinary people manage the tumult of their lives. And not all of the chapters are about violence and conflict. Some of them are. And so, and so I opened the chapter by looking at the memoirs of three people, two of whom were just teenagers at the time the Ming Dynasty was falling. And I'm interested to see what they remember from their teenage years, what they think to write down, and then from that, doors seem to open in all directions when you do that. Because as I say, we don't have people up at the court keeping daily diaries that we can flip open and narrate from that point of view. So I find it, the archive has sort of forced me to do this, but it also, I guess my own inclination is to go down and find real people and not be obsessed with royalty. Some of the details that you give from the writings of these individuals, Dong Hang, who's one of the teenagers you've mentioned, or Cheng Qidu, who's a 70-year-old, something, 70-something-year-old teacher, are really compelling accounts. Would you share some of these details of what they're seeing and experiencing in these years? Well, Chen Qidu, yes, was an old man at the time that the Ming was disappearing. And his diary is really not much about politics. It's about the fact that China was entering a terrible phase of climate downturn. China, like Europe, is caught in the Little Ice Age. But in 1629, temperatures in China just plummet in a way that, of course, from the European perspective, we know from the paintings of skaters on the canals of Holland and that sort of thing. It hit China very hard, and it hit China very hard for a couple of reasons. One is that China is dependent on grain agriculture, as places all around the world are. But as those temperatures drop, all of the agriculture in the northern latitudes in China has to be abandoned. It's too cold. You can't get the grain to ripen in the fields. And rice is rather more sensitive to temperature fluctuation than wheat or millet or barley. So that's starting to happen. But then, about 1637, China is hit by a massive drought that is not relieved until about 1645. So what Chen Shidu writes, in his case, what he did is he sat down in the fall of 1640. He decided, I'm going to write an account of what's just happened in the last year. And it's people starving. There's no food in the markets. The markets shut down. Not a drop of water in the river. And then the following fall, he does the same thing. He writes this second essay in which he describes what's going on. For him, he does it for a moral reason, because if the cosmos is under the 
control of heaven, which is a kind of an, a distant, impersonal force that responds to human failures. And so from a Confucian perspective in the 1640s, if there's a climate downturn on the scale, environmental disaster on the scale, it has to be that heaven has unleashed it on humans for their failures. And then this leads the older moralists to start then telling stories about how terrible the Chongjun court is, although they, you really can't do that because that's treason to start writing that kind of thing. But you start reading political developments in moral terms. You read everything in moral terms. Now, that's why I turn to the reminiscences of some who were teenagers in those years, because they're not yet doing this sort of moral reading. So uh, Dong Han, for example, young man whose family fled off into the countryside as social order was collapsing in the hope that they would be protected there. They eventually retreat into the city of Songjiang, which is southwest of Shanghai, in the hope of having the protection of the city walls around them as the Manchu army invade. And so he picks up a lot of odd stories that are actually quite fascinating. In one of those stories, the strange white birds gather in the drum tower. The drum tower was a structure that every Chinese city had, and it would sound out the watches of the night. And so these birds descend on the drum tower, make just an awful cacophony that drowns out every other sound. And then in the morning, it turns out they're white birds, and white is the color of death in Chinese culture. And so he has these sorts of stories, which don't really tell us much in the way of fact, but give us a sense of what the experience of going through this period was like. He also loved to tell stories of strange births. So a woman who gave birth to 13 babies, each of which was six inches long, and of course they all died. And he wants to tell these stories because for him they expressed the wild aberration of the times that he was living in they capture the fear and anxiety that people are experiencing. It's so fascinating to me as a historian of Europe in this period to hear this because we see exactly the same sort of things going on. We see the same sort of conversations about what's going on with environmental disasters or plague or droughts, epidemics. And we see the same comment that it must be God's wrath or heaven's dissatisfaction, you know, slight difference. And we see the same interest in portents and signs like monstrous births. It's striking that across the world, these kind of environmental disasters have indicated something greater about where society and where the political nation is going. So this is one of the motivations driving the writing of Great State. I want to show that China is part of the world so that the experiences of Little Ice Age that Europe was having, the experience of the plague, going, I've got a chapter on the Black Death in the 14th century. China was going through the same sorts of experiences. They were not off on a separate planet. But secondly, I'm interested in understanding not the universality of human experience, but the commonality of a universal experience so that the Chinese are struggling with the same things that Europeans are struggling with. They're responding institutionally, sometimes in different ways, but culturally often in very similar ways. And one of my goals with the book, the book has a great deal of detail to it, of sort of a granular sense of what it meant to live in an everyday way. And I've written that in the hope that Western readers will not feel, oh, I don't know anything about China. I can't possibly understand what he's talking about. I want instead to kind of write about ordinary people in ordinary situations in a way that will give 
Western readers a sense of, ah, that's how they were living their lives. That's what they were doing. I understand that. My goal with the book is to try and lower this kind of barrier of cultural difference that I think we still, even in the 21st century, we are still captured by this sense of difference that won't allow us to feel that we can understand a culture that isn't our own. I'm glad you caught this sense of similarity because that's what I'm trying to do in the book. It's very interesting that that remains as a kind of barrier to understanding. Anyway, we shall plow on because we're hoping that in this conversation alone, people will start to understand, as I am doing, a little bit more about this period. So first of all, I suppose, is there a sense, do you have a sense in your research of how widely spread these troubles were? By which I mean environmental disasters. The environmental troubles. Oh, yes. One of the things I've started doing in late in my career is reading scientific articles, which is an entirely different genre from the sort of thing you and I write. And it's been quite fascinating. But I needed to do that because if I'm going to show that China is part of the world, it helps to have some physical proxies, temperatures and precipitation and winds and so forth. And very quickly, you begin to see that the world is a single environmental entity. It's broken up into regions. Geography means that different parts of the world are going to react to environmental change in different ways. But if the basic fact, if solar energy reaching the earth is dropping, it's going to have a universal impact all around the world. People will respond in different ways, but the world is a single place. And so it's a single energy system. You're undoubtedly aware of Jeffrey Parker's book, Global Crisis. I happen to know Jeffrey, and he's originally a historian of Spain, of course. And well, He's been on the podcast and spoken wonderfully before, so we're great fans of Jeffrey. Oh, terrific. Well, what delighted me about his ambition with Global Crisis was that he was going to include everywhere in the world. So he's got a chapter on China. I consulted with him on that. He's got a chapter on Japan chapter on the Americas. I mean, he wants to press home the fact that environmental history is not what happens in one place. It's what happens everywhere. You can look at one place, but you've got to be able to see what's going on everywhere. And the nice thing about his approach is that he recognizes that different cultures are going to respond in different ways. Some are going to do better. Some are going to do worse. I think it's been a while since I've read the book. I think Japan comes off quite well in his analysis. China, perhaps less so. And there are particularities about European responses to climate change that are fascinating. And so I like the idea that he's done that. And to do it requires a great deal of uh, hubris and ambition because no one can be a specialist about everything. Jeffrey consulted with colleagues who worked in other parts of the world in order to write the story he wrote. And I have to say that I have, to some extent, been consulting with Europeanist colleagues in various aspects, and also with science people. I've had to read about epidemiology. I've had to read about climate change. I've had a few interesting conversations with specialists in these areas in order that I can rest the stories I tell on a more substantial foundation, not just what happened in China, but what happened in China as it was happening globally. I am going to take you back to what was happening in China, though, because what I would be interested to know is, can you outline for us the effects of these terrible events on Chongjung and the rise of the wonderfully named Dashing Prince? Well, the immediate effects of the climate downturn of the 1630s, the main effect is starvation. And it hits North China 
harder than it does South China. It takes a while to get to South China. South China has much greater water resources and has a much more temperate climate. But North China was hit very hard in the 1630s. And one of the ironies, I don't know if it's an irony, but the communications, the state communication system was run by soldiers. As famine hit, localities were not forwarding their taxes to the central government. As revenue fell, the central government made cuts. And one of the unfortunate cuts they made was in the communication system, which meant they laid off a lot of soldiers. Now, when you lay off soldiers, you have a group of people who are going to take matters into their own hands. And one of these was Li Zicheng, who he had been a postal soldier. He'd been laid off in the northwest part of China. He turned to banditry. He gathered a group of people around him. And gradually, he has an army. And he takes the name of the Dashing Prince. He doesn't coin it himself. It's coined for him. He becomes, it's the name that he happens to be given. And so... He's building his own military force, and it's not difficult to do because as government resources dwindle, then rebels can just pick off outposts all over the place, counties in more out-of-the-way areas. They just move in and take them over, which is what Lee does. And then in 1643, he starts moving eastward towards Beijing and has a couple of lucky breaks. The way is open to him so that in the spring of 1644, He is at the doors of the city of Beijing. And at that time, the Beijing military is up at the Great Wall trying to fend off a threat from the Manchus. And so the dashing prince is able to pretty much just walk into Beijing and take over. Emperor Chongzhen is left in a perilous position. Many of his advisors say, escape before the dashing prince arises. Let's move you south, because there was a precedent Five centuries earlier, when the Song dynasty was collapsing, the Song emperor fled down to Hangzhou in South China, and then the Song then continued to survive for a considerable amount of time. And so the hope was, okay, the north is going to fall. The Ming emperor, Chongzhen, should flee south to Nanjing. They had a secondary capital there, and they should defend the Ming from Nanjing, not from Beijing. But he didn't want to do that. He felt that the moment that he abandoned Beijing the dynasty would collapse. And so what he did is he smuggled all of his sons out of the city so that he would have heirs. I mean, he was anticipating the fact that he might not survive this. A council of state meeting the day before he commits suicide in which he was urged to flee. This was the last possible moment. And he said, no, he's going to stay in the palace. He's going to remain there. He's not going to flee and he's going to take his chances. And then the following day, the palace pretty much emptied out. His advisors fled. His military entourage fled. He was left alone with his family. He decided that the women in his family should not fall into the hands of the rebels. So he ordered his wife, the empress, to commit suicide, which she did. He proceeded to execute his daughters, and then he went up to a hill behind the Forbidden City, and as the story goes, hanged himself. And the story is not clear. That's how it appears in the history books. It's possible that he was strangled and then his body was made to look like he had hanged himself. We don't actually know how he died, but the suicide of the Chungjun Emperor is the finishing point on the dynasty. So this solved a big problem for the dashing prince, because what do you do when you move into an imperial capital and you've got an emperor on your hands? 
Do you make him your puppet? Do you dethrone him? Do you replace him? Well, committing suicide meant that then Li Zicheng was able to declare a new dynasty, declare himself the founder of a new dynasty. But at that point, the Ming military has struck a deal with the Manchus. They've rushed back to Beijing. Li Zicheng is kicked out. His brief dynasty is over, and he's eventually murdered a year later on the run. It's all a devastating tale. Can we just do a moment of kind of hypothetical thinking, counterfactual thinking. Was there anything in your view that Chong Jong could have done differently to better endure the natural disasters? And when Lee got to the capital, did he have other options apart from the one he took, do you think? There are things that both men could have done differently, but I'm not sure that that would have changed the outcome. In my view, this was, it's not just my view, I have found the scientific evidence for it. I've also found documentary evidence. I've been tracking the price of rice through the Ming Dynasty, and it hits levels that are just unimaginable in the last six or seven years of the dynasty. So in my view, the scale of environmental collapse was so astounding the destruction of food sources so complete that there was almost nothing that any regime could have done. Now, that's perhaps a little too easy to say because when the Manchus come across the Great Wall, they set up their own regime, they get going again. They do it in 1644, and in 1644, conditions start to improve a little bit. So there's a bit of rain. Temperatures start to recover slightly. The Manchus invade just at the moment in which the natural conditions are starting to shift. But I'm not sure that there's anything Chung Chun could have done. There was no food. There were epidemics with 80 to 90% mortality in some regions of the country. China was just devastated by the environmental collapse of the late 1630s and early 1640s. And in that regard, I think you have to give Chung Chun you have to sort of read his record with a measure of recognition of this, that he was acting as any emperor would of trying to appoint the right people, move resources to the right places, make the right decisions. He had a lack of information about what was going on because, as I said earlier, the communication systems were breaking down. He did the best that he could, but to rule a country of 100 million people under an environmental collapse on this scale had just become untenable. So he commits suicide and then Li Zicheng has to flee six weeks later because he's got no answers. He can't just sort of go in and round up all the grains sitting in the granaries and say, fine, I can now, I will distribute this to my people and we'll get back on track because there was no grain in the granaries. There was no money in the treasury. Beijing was bankrupt by April of 1644 when the rebels arrived. So they really had no choice. And once a well-armed and well-organized military force arrives, the rebels just had to flee and take off. So that's the missing part of the puzzle, I suppose. It's the rise of the Manchu and how they're in a position to capitalise on you know, this devastating moment in Chinese history. Yes, and that's really a, a story in its own right. It's a very large and complicated story, but there have been large states out beyond the Great Wall ever since well, the Song period, at least, when the Jurchen's ancestors established a dynasty in North China. And then they come back under a leader in the late 16th century named Nurhatsi, who starts to unify the Jurchen people. He brings in Mongol allies, and then his son Hong Taiji takes over. 
and pretty much does the preparation for invading China. And China is always the prize. It's sitting there. It's wealthy. It's got food stocks. It's got silks and porcelains. It's a, a source of revenue. It's what you want to capture. The Mongols, of course, the Jurchens occupied China. The Mongols occupied China. And the Manchus then, for them, it, it was their turn. They were also, though, being pushed by the climate crisis because their food supplies were dwindling. The Manchus were semi-nomadic people, but they also relied to some extent on agriculture. And agriculture up in the Northeast, in what we now call Manchuria, was just collapsing under environmental pressures. So in fact, the climate was pushing the Manchus south into North China. They couldn't survive out where they were. And it was pushing them south at a time at which the Ming was collapsing. And so they exploited the situation. One could say brilliantly, one could also say viciously. And the Manchu takeover was not a gentle event. To their credit, the Manchus would arrive outside a city and say, surrender or we will massacre everyone. And most city officials decided, I guess, surrender is the sensible course. And in a few cases, they didn't. And the promised massacres followed. So the Manchu takeover is a violent, terrible military invasion and military occupation. But it's one they're able to secure the country and then rule for almost three centuries under the name of the Qing Great State. You've made a very compelling case today for how environmental disaster on this scale can affect a country, can bring down a dynasty. And given that we've all now lived through a pandemic, we can understand how natural events can be seismic. But you were alluding earlier to the fact that other historians have understood the fall of the Ming dynasty to be the result of factionalism at the court. Do you think that's because their focus was very much on the court and not on the country as a whole? And do you feel that you've been able to turn the tide of the historiography in your work? The traditional narrative that we get is one that was given to us by politicians and scholars in the decades right after the fall of the Ming. Anyone who survived the fall, who was a Ming loyalist, claimed mea culpa. You know, I failed to do the service that I should have done to keep my dynasty on track. They took it personally. And in fact, the Manchu conquerors made the same point. Dorgon, who's the uncle of the, uh, of the new Manchu emperor, said that the Ming military officials were incompetent, the civil officials were greedy, they committed criminal acts. Everyone painted the last decades of the Ming as a case of complete moral collapse, administrative collapse, and it suited them because that then paved the way for the Manchus to come in and say, we are morally upright, we are administratively sensible, we have put China back on track, this is a good thing. And most of the Ming loyalists um, signed on to this idea that the Ming had failed. But as a historian who's looking at the day-to-day the -day lives of Ming people, I don't see that the Ming failed. It, they just ran into this series of terrible events that they couldn't manage. Now, I'm not the first person to notice that there was a big environmental downturn at the end of the Ming, but it's usually treated, well, if you say turn to the Cambridge History of China, which is a very fat volume, it's treated in a couple of pages here and there. It's thought, okay, this is part of the story that needs to be told. But I think until my research, it wasn't recognized quite how vast the environmental collapse was and the scale of its impact, particularly on food supply. In a pre-industrial grain agricultural society, 
you need the food to come out of the ground every year. And if it doesn't come out, if it doesn't mature, you have nothing to eat. And that it's an, in fact a simple perception. But I think we've needed to go through the rise of environmental history from the 1990s forward. We've needed that new trend of history to be able to appreciate just how world events are often shaped by the natural conditions that are governing everyday life at the time. And what I've done is I've tracked that as best I can. In particular, my research is focused on the price of grain, and which was basically, there was a little scholarship on that before I got into this. But I found that the fluctuations in the price of grain through the course of the dynasty match really well with fluctuations in environmental change. Now, occasionally I hear the word environmental determinism muttered as though this is a sin. And I'm not going to say I'm an environmental determinist, but I will say that if we leave the environment out of the history that we tell of cultures and societies, we're missing a fundamental condition within which human beings live. And I don't mind being called an environmental determinist, as a matter of fact, but I don't see myself as that. I see myself instead as someone who's interested in the way in which people respond to the pressures that the natural world presents them. And sometimes they respond well, sometimes less well. And sometimes the response is simply, it's beyond what anyone can do. There's nothing you can do when temperatures are 10 degrees lower and there's not a drop of water in the canals. There is nothing you can do but flee and there's nowhere you can flee. And that was the situation that China faced in the early 1640s. Thank you so much for talking us through the fall of this dynasty. I would love to come back and speak to you another time about more of its heyday, because you've been such a clear expositor of this culture in this period. But for today, thank you very much for giving us a real insight into this period of crisis and this dramatic downfall of this important dynasty. Well, Suzanne, it's been a pleasure. I'm delighted that you feel that China is part of the world, the historical world that you want to present. And um, I'd be delighted to come back anytime. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you might also like to follow up on the story of Sir Walter Raleigh and his search for El Dorado with our podcast of that name, Walter Raleigh's Quest for El Dorado with Matthew Lyons. And if you haven't already done so, do sign up to our weekly newsletter, Tudor Tuesday, so that you never miss out on the history you love. There are details in the notes below this podcast. Please rate this podcast wherever you listen now including on Spotify. And please send me your comments and suggestions for future podcasts via our Twitter feed at NotJustTudors or by email NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.